Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Cheerio, Governor. Cheerio, cheerio, cheerio. Cheerio, everybody. Cheerio, cheerio, cheerio. I had some this morning. Oh, cheerio, cheerio. I love cheerio. Okay, maybe this was a bad idea. Maybe this whole, you know, British accent thing to start off this episode was not really well thought through. (laughs) Well, speak for yourself, Governor. I can't stop saying cheerio, cheerio. Wait. Stop, Jim. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome to MASH Matters. This is a podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, MASH. Yeah, that one. My name is Ryan Patrick. I am a super fan of the show, and I am joined by my partner in crime who portrayed Private Igor on nine seasons of MASH, Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. And hello, Ryan Patrick. It was a wonderful thing to perform for nine seasons on the television show MASH. Had a great time, uh, cooked a lot of terrible, terrible food, and uh, made a few bucks. Pretty much your biography there, isn't it? That's it. You know, (laughs) bad food and a few bucks. What the heck else is there? Coming out in the fall from Simon & Schuster. So, you know, uh, I said that this is a podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, and some new listeners to this episode may take umbrage with that because they may consider another show to be the greatest television show of all time and that show would be downton abbey now why are we on a mash podcast talking about downton abbey you know when it first happened i i didn't really realize i thought it was downtown abbey like an x-rated show or something i didn't know what it, exactly it was downtown abbey i gotta watch this wow so why are we talking about downton abbey well obviously you know because downton abbey was set during the korean war uh wait no uh no i don't know that's so. I don't that's think not so. true uh no. downton abbey was an army show no, about no, the- no not an army show they were in a big castle thing i I think. Oh, not a tent. Not a tent. No. Okay. It was a real castle and there were a lot of people and they spoke in a strange accent, (laughs) which we can't do very well. No, here's the reason we're talking about Downton Abbey today, because our very special guest on the podcast today is the one and only Leslie Nickel, who portrayed Mrs. Padmore on Downton Abbey. And we thought, Jeff, wouldn't it be cool, since you know Leslie and have a good relationship with her? Well, until now, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We've been good friends, and now, you know, who knows? This is the tipping point right here. Might be. We thought, how cool would it be to have two legendary TV cooks from two iconic television shows on the same podcast? You can't find that anywhere else except right here. Nowhere. Not on your radio dial, not on your television set, not on your Netflix thing, nowhere except here on MASH Matters are you going to hear something as amazing as this. Typically, if we do an episode that's not MASH-focused, we would release it as a bonus episode. Mm -hmm. And that was our intent. This was going to be a bonus episode. However, technology is great until it isn't, and then it sucks like a Hoover. (laughs) I got very nervous for a second there. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, technology kind of reared its ugly head and came back to bite us. So what we had planned originally for our episode today fell through at the last minute. So we're going to go ahead and bring you this interview with Leslie Nickel because it's a wonderful interview. She is delightful. And we do talk a little bit about MASH in it. And we talk a lot about Downton Abbey. But even if you are not a Downton Abbey fan, even if you've never seen the show, you are still going to enjoy this episode. And if you've never seen MASH, 
What is the matter with you, for <laughs> God's sakes? Take a look at it. It's a cute little show. It's not bad. It's not bad. It made you a few bucks. It did. Uh, another cool thing about this episode is my wife makes a cameo in this episode. This is her first appearance on Match Matters. And I don't know, maybe her last. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Well, I'm, I'm very glad Leslie agreed to do the interview with us. It's a great one. We're going to have a lot of fun. Obviously, her handlers and her people made a mistake letting her come on, but that's okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. And now, here's our interview with Leslie Nickel. So, Leslie, it's so wonderful. How are you? It's so nice to see you, by Very, very good. Thank you very much. I am uh, in roasty hot Los Angeles. But you have said that you might be uh, leaving Los Angeles. Yes, yes. Well, if that's a necessity. We will definitely miss you. Uh, Los Angeles will miss you. But I shall return if anyone wants to give me a job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're on a very, very popular podcast now, so a phone is going to start ringing. What, Ryan, what do we get? 33% if uh, she gets the job? I <laughs> right. We'll have our people call your people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feel free to flog me to the anybody. Anybody. I'm very cheap. <laughs> 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 I'm not going there. Uh, so this is the podcast called MASH Matters. And I'll tell you a little history. Ryan is a very big MASH fan. And uh, he reached out to me. We met about, oh, how many years ago? 20 years ago? Yeah, 20 years ago, yeah. And we just stayed in touch. We kind of got along and stayed in touch. And umpteen years later, he wrote to me and said, hey, I want to do a MASH podcast. Uh, would you be a guest? And I said, no, but I'll do it with you. <laughs> and I wouldn't have done it with anybody else other than Ryan Patrick, because he is a very talented broadcaster and a very uh, smart guy. So it sounded like a good thing to do. The other thing about it is that he is a fan of MASH and had, you know, grown up watching the show and, and bonding with the characters and falling in love with all the characters. I bonded with the money and the <laughs> paycheck. <laughs> How many years did you do? I was on nine years. The show was on 11. I was on nine. You know, I loved all the people. I bonded with all the people when we were there. But I wasn't connected to the characters as much as people who were watching the show, fans of the show. I just wasn't. I loved everybody, but I went home and, you know, <laughs> did my thing. And I wasn't bonded with the, all of the characters. So that's kind of a perspective that we have. He's a great fan. He can talk to the fan side of it. I can talk to the, well, it was a job. It was a good job. But, you know, it's still a job. And, you know, I guess I, I wondered if you have a little bit of the same feeling. I mean, you were on an incredibly popular, wonderful, beautiful television show, Downton Abbey. Yeah. And I wondered if you have any kind of the same sort of feel about that. I don't think I can say that it was just a job because it was so life-changing. Yeah. It, not just professionally, but personally. It had a huge impact on my life, so there's nothing to compare it to. I hadn't, I haven't had another job remotely like it. Mm -hmm. Nobody expected it to be the sort of phenomenon it was. It took us all by surprise, but it just, it did have a huge impact. So I'm just, I, I think of it in retrospect as the biggest bit of luck ever, really. Mm -hmm. Any number of people could have played that part, my part, any number of them. Loads of, there were loads of clever character baggers in England who could have done that job. And I just see it as just one of those wonderful moments when everything aligned and I got lucky. Because I was seen and I was the only person they ever saw. 
when does that ever happen? Ever, ever, ever. Yeah. So that, that, you know, I just see it as a, an extraordinary piece of fabulous luck. Did you audition for it? I met the, um, the producer who I knew vaguely in the park with my dogs. We were walking our dogs. We had a long conversation about this job she'd just got. And it was all about her. And I was thrilled for her because she'd not been doing a whole lot before. And she'd had a quiet few months. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. And not talking about me or any part of my involvement. And then at the end of it, as she was leaving, she said, you know what? There might be a part you could be right for. And off she flew. And I didn't take that at all seriously. Not that she is not a woman of her word, but as you know, things change mm-hmm. all the time and you don't know why or how, but they do. And so you don't hold your breath. Mm-hmm. And then three months later, a call came. Here's some scenes. Will you come in and put them on tape? And I did that. And meanwhile, I know that the writer and the producer had said to the powers that be, the, the, the network in England, we've got the, this woman who might be right. Should we just put her on tape? And if you don't like her, we'll move on. And they went, yeah, yeah. And already they had Maggie Smith and they had Hugh Bonneville and they had it ticked a lot of boxes. So they weren't stressed about it. Mm-hmm. And then it was just my piece of good luck that they went, oh, yeah, that works. <laughs> like there's no competition. That's a fabulous situation to be in yeah that's when the magic happens oh yeah that works yeah yeah give her the part yeah what the and heck sometimes as we all know it doesn't happen like that yeah that's the norm it doesn't but this time it did when you read the script did you like the part i mean did you go hey i get this this, this is kind of cool I well, actually i loved reading the script it was like a really good read mm-hmm. you know sometimes reading scripts can be a bit challenging or dare i say it can be a bit boring maybe yeah yeah I really loved reading it. It was like a great read. As far as Mrs. Palmore went, I, at the very beginning, she was just full on bossy, mean. There was no humor to her at all. And I think I was trying to figure out, as an actor does, why was she like that? Because nobody's just bossy. Nobody's just mean. There'll be a reason why they're behaving that way. And you have to figure out, don't you? You have to figure out what's going on. Why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. So that was the main thing was, okay, why is this woman such a bitch? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, why why is she doing this? As it turned out, we found out later because Julian, the writer, once he saw what the actors brought, he started writing to their strengths. And I only found out like last year, he said, Mrs. Patmore, when I started out writing, it was not meant to be funny. I didn't see funny oh. i saw her as you know dominating and you know strong and formidable and da, da, da. but because me and the girl who played daisy the kitchen maid got on so phenomenally well yeah and again that was luck too yeah because we didn't you know they do these chemistry reads apparently these days well nah, nah. this was just great fortune that we love each other and we make each other laugh a lot yeah and so once that started happening he wrote more of a double act and it went in a whole different direction so actually it went in a direction I loved playing. I'm glad we didn't have to stay with the old bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, he wrote, he wrote what he, why he's such a good writer. You know, nobody's one thing. So he developed everybody's characters so that you saw this woman who was, could certainly be strong and, and leader, a leader in the kitchen. You also find out she's scared, that she's vulnerable. She's insecure sometimes. She's frightened of losing a job. Da, da, da. So he, he fleshed it all out, made it much more interesting for everybody as time went on, you know. And you had over, there were 55 episodes. Is that right? So. I've got a cup somewhere. Something like that. Is it 56? Oh, now my husband's now going to get said cup. This was a, this was a mug, which I get down from the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, let me read my mug and I'll tell you. <laughs> this mug was given to me by, oh, I was given to me by Hugh Bonneville, who played the Earl of Grantham. He gave everybody a mug and it says, I may be a mug, but I did all 52 episodes of Downton Abbey. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it was 52, yeah, and a movie. 52. And you had one writer, yeah. Julian Fellows, right? He One writer wrote all those episodes for all those characters for all those years. Wow. Holy moly. Know, for one minute, he had a couple of people came on board, but he, he just really, I think, honestly, he found it too difficult to relinquish. You know, he had the vision. He, he invented it all from his brain. I mean, this is not an adaptation. He created every single story character from nothing and I think it was his baby and he just felt he had to you know steer the ship and he did all the way did he ever get another job or was that Next just uh just that getting job. <laughs> <laughs> so many jobs. it's ridiculous <laughs> not just I mean television series he did you know this musical school of rock he did the book for Mary Poppins oh he's he never stops I, I remember Larry Gelbart who wrote probably the first four years of MASH, pretty much single-handedly, although he, a couple of other people came in towards the end of that. But he was such a genius as well. And he would go, uh, if there was a little problem on the set, they'd call him down and he'd ride his bicycle down from his office. And he'd say, okay, read this scene. You know, everybody play this scene. And he'd turn his back and look at the wall. And he'd listen to the scene. He'd hear it. He'd just hear, hear the music of it. And he would turn around and without thinking. He didn't make a note or anything. He'd turn around and he'd say, okay, you say this, you say this, you say that. And somebody would be furiously writing it down. And they did. And they say that. And it was all perfect. And then he went, okay, thanks. Bye. And he'd go away. Amazing. So those guys like, like Julian and Larry Gelbart, what's, their heads are just different than certainly mine. Anyway. What happened with after MASH? What happened then? Did he go on to do other? Yeah, he left the show. And I asked him, I said, why are you leaving? He said, nah, I'm just tired. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You know, four years of riding it, you know, your guy was there for six years, though. Mm -hmm. So he left and he went on to do various things. Uh, you know, he wrote Tootsie and all kinds oh. of movies and plays. And yeah, he was yeah. he was a brilliant guy. Wonderful human being, too. The other thing, actually, Jeff, is, though, that your seasons were probably much longer than ours. Yeah. How many episodes did you do? Usually about 22, I think, something like that. 24. Yeah. Ryan would know. Ryan knows that. How many episodes did we do? Yeah, you're right. About 22, 23, something like that every season. What dates did oh, they yeah, have? Yeah, okay. Ryan, could you give us any dates? He probably gave him 20 minutes. He could. That <laughs> <laughs> was his stuff, I'm telling you. So I see a lot of similarities, though, with the phenomenon that was MASH and the cultural phenomenon that was Downton Abbey, too. At what point in the filming process did you suddenly realize, this is special, we've got something here? It was With us, it was a slow burn in the first season. Just a few little things, weird things started happening. And I can only, I mean, I'll give you two examples. Bearing in mind, this is something created in the UK. You know what us, us Brits are like? We're not as a race as effusive as you are. <laughs> We're a bit more reserved on the whole and a bit shyer. And so I remember two or three weeks into the first season, they've been on three Sundays in a row, and I was walking my dogs in the park, and a lady who I really didn't know very well at all ran full tilt towards me with her arms out and got me in a headlock and, and said, oh, 
Ah, love this genre. Oh my God, guess what, guess what? My husband loves it. My husband loves it. So that's something that started. That was a pattern. Everybody was, got, to use an expression from England, they were gobsmacked yeah. because you know, men aren't supposed to like period drama. It was like, how come my husband or my 14-year-old son likes it? Yeah. So that was the first indication of more than usual feedback from your British people. The other thing that happened was I think Hugh, who played Lord Grantham and um, Elizabeth McGovern, who's American, of course, they went over to uh, America and they went to Washington and they were invited to the White House. And I was seething and livid because I've never been there and I still haven't. Yeah. So, but anyway, what happened was they were in a big crowd of people and this woman, they could see her fighting her way, elbowing people out the way to get to Hugh and Elizabeth. It was Hillary Clinton. Oh, my oh gosh. Well, she was trying to get into the White House again, I think. Maybe that was. <laughs> she was getting into the company of Hugh and Elizabeth. Wow. And she loves this. She said, oh, we all sit together in our PJs on a Sunday night. Now, this is Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea, I imagine, in their PJs of a Saturday, of Sunday night watching Downton Abbey. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And that never stopped happening. Weird and wonderful and unexpected yeah. and very famous sometimes people. The Obamas similarly. Yeah. So it goes on. And you go, blimey, this is a bit different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Those things started happening. And then we would, if you'd go abroad somewhere, you'd get recognized in places that you never thought, like China. Yeah. I was recognized in a field in China. Oh, my gosh. Through the interpreter, he said, is that the lady from the movie Downton Abbey? <laughs> and sometimes it happened if you're with another cast member. Or in America, people didn't always recognize my face, but they definitely heard my voice. Yeah. My friend Sophie, who plays Daisy, who was my little kind of sidekick, we were at ground zero, being very respectful and quiet and looking around. And a lady from New Zealand came up and said, excuse me, are you from Down Abbey? <laughs> My goodness, yeah. I, that's, yeah, it is an amazing thing when a television show touches so many people in such a powerful way. I mean, MASH did it, Downton Abbey's done it. I guess I have not had that experience in terms of a fan. I love shows and I watch TV shows and there are some that I like better than others. I've just never become bonded and emotionally attached to something. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but I never have. So I, I'm, I'm still trying to understand the experience. Well, I had a little kind of fan in reverse moment when I was at Ealing, which is where we filmed Downton Abbey, the interior, the sort of downstairs scenes, which is in West London. And in our last season, I heard, actually, Jeff, I think you know this story because it's in my One Woman show, so you've heard it. But I heard our designer, Donald, talking to Jim Carter, who plays Mr. Carson, the, the butler. And I heard Donald say, hey, Jim, uh, Tony sends his love. And I heard Jim say, uh, Tony who? And he went, Tony Hopkins. And I completely had a, a meltdown, <laughs> a very loud meltdown. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. And I said, what do you mean, Tony Hopkins? I didn't know you even knew Tony Hopkins. I love Tony. I mean, I do have that level. Oh, of, yeah, sure. And there he was filming on the next stage to us. Yeah. That's a very long story short. The, the, the designer ran off when he could see how kind of affected and bonkers I was. He, he made a little card and, and on this card there was a picture of Hannibal Lecter <laughs> and there was a picture of Mrs. P and a big heart and it said, Hannibal loves Mrs. Patmore. And so I wrote a message on this thing uh, to him and I said, dear sir, because he was playing sir in the dresser, I said, dear sir, 
Um, welcome to Ealing. Love from Leslie Nicholl, Mrs. P, and all the Dantonites. And I gave it to the runner, and she said, I'll put it under his dressing room door if you like. And I went, okay. And then I panicked and thought, oh, no, 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 that's embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> oh no, cringe. Anyway, we were at the end of the morning, and I was doing a scene with Jim in his little study, and we were waiting for something to happen, as you do. And I saw Jim walk to the door and put his arms out, and I was thinking, Oh, what's that? What's going on? So I followed Jim to the door, and then this head popped round into my face, and this face went. Oh. <laughs> doing Hannibal Lecter in my face. Oh boy, that's a moment. <laughs> that's a moment. And then he gave me a huge hug, and then he wafted off, and I had to carry on working. Yeah. <laughs> I understand when you kind of lose your stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'm, a little, I'm identifying with that a little bit. I, I didn't have the, the emotional bonding necessarily a television show, but a person. I grew up loving, you know, the very distinguished Derry Lewis, <laughs> and uh, that's, you know, that's the guy. I thought, well, that's what the universe is all about: is this guy. <laughs> and I, you know, pardon me. Meet him. I met him. I through an interesting series of events. He invited me down to the set, and I watched him. I went to a set of one of his movies that he was filming. I was, I think, I was about nineteen years old or something. Wow. And I got my old suit on, and I went down there, and I was a basket case. I mean, I really was. I mean, you want to be together and sensible, and you just lose you it. You lose it. You go. What's the Lewis? I don't know. It's you know yeah. you can't help it. I mean that's you know once you identify with a guy like that or anybody, and you respect him as an actor. You, I mean I love Anthony Hopkins. I would do the same thing. I just I'd pass out having him do that. Yeah. And one of the most scary things we've ever seen on film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let alone it's Anthony Hopkins <laughs> doing it to you. So was Downton Abbey one of like your first big deal or, I mean, you had a long and wonderful history and you're an excellent performer, singer, incredibly talented actress. So before Downton Abbey, what was going on? Well, I guess, I mean, I, I thought I was doing all right, just getting jobs. You know, my level of ambition was never frenzied. It was just, I was grateful to be allowed to do what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And that meant for many, many years, I was lucky enough to be a country that had a repertory theatre system, which meant that if you were lucky, you'd go from theatre to theatre and you'd do tons of things that you weren't really right for. But it's a great way to learn and a training ground. And I, you know, as a female, I seemed to earn a living. I wasn't rich, but I worked and I didn't have to go and wait tables particularly or anything. So I always thought I was doing okay, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of little, you know, you get little jobs that niche you up a bit. I did a, a movie that was very successful in England, not particularly around the world, but it just happened to be the right kind of story at the right time called East is East. And that gave me a bit more profile, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I was probably one of those actors where they go, oh, in fact, I would get this. It's awful. I don't know if you've had this, Jeff. This is awful. This is terrible. People go, oh, Oh, don't tell me. Don't tell me. Oh, yes. Um, no, don't tell me. Now, what have you been in? And you go, well, you go, oh, God, I've been doing this since 1973. So where, where are we going to go? And then I remember saying, well, I was in Casualty, which is a very ordinary, really, TV show in the UK. I was in Casualty on Saturday. Ugh, I hate Casualty. Ugh. And then and you're embarking on a conversation that you didn't want in the first place. 
and you're letting them down and not coming up with what they want to hear. So I was one of those actors. I was the one where if you went on a red carpet, all the photographers would lift their cameras and then they'd go, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, that happened. <laughs> Oh, that's it. Was, you know, thinking, well, I'm all right. I get jobs. I mean, it's okay. And then it went from theatre to TV. And then I would be, a, I did a series regular on a few. And then I was in Mamma Mia in the West End, very like year two and three. That was another kind of woof up into a musical theatre kind of career that I hadn't really had. I'd done lots of musicals, but not in the West End, except at the very beginning when I was a babe. And I did Jesus Christ Superstar in the first ever production of that. Hmm. But then there was 28 years doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> so my career was a bit all over the place, but it was, I felt blessed because I was allowed to do, you know, a serious drama one day and then a musical in the West End and then be off doing radio and TV stuff, all kinds of different things. So I, I really did feel I was one of the lucky ones. But something like Downton Abbey just puts you into, I mean, for instance, nobody in the US would have known who I was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know who I was because I'd been here a few years ago and they just looked at me and they went, oh, yeah, you're kind of Julie Walters. <laughs> so Downton Abbey just changed the landscape in every way. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a, a role model in terms of an actress when you were coming up and starting out? Did you have somebody that you had say, hey, I really want to be that? Well, you know, I mean, we have some smart old actors in, in England. We do. Yeah. For a little place, we've got some pretty, you know, so, you know, people like Judy Dench, yeah. well, you just look at Judy Dench, you think, well, look at her, she's marvellous. She I don't think I'd have the classical, I could have anything like the classical career she has, because I don't think that's my thing in a way, but she sort of can do everything. Mm-hmm. And then she's got more popular as she's got older. I think that's what I like to see, is the ones who blossom as they get older. Mm-hmm. I, I'm having that, I'm going to have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because because people will tell you, and this is another thing I've been able to bang on about since people actually listen to what you say, is people will tell you that an actress over 40 is never going to work and forget it. Yeah. And that is not what happened to me. I got my best job in my 50s or whatever it was. Yeah. And I got married when I was 50-something, 50 52. Yeah. <laughs> and people say, no, you've had it now. You're on the shelf. No. You go, well, shut up, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Things happen to people at different times is what happens. Yeah. And I think that's encouraging to people. I think it's that. changing. I don't think that's... Uh really the the rule of thumb anymore. And I think it's because the Netflix thing and the Hulu and the Zulu and the Mulu and all the other venues, all the other outlets, you have to have content. And so there's more shows and more shows require more characters and more characters require more actors and actresses. People are understanding that older people are the ones with stories. Hello. Yeah. They actually have some stories to tell. Yeah. So anyway, whatever I won't be told that. I won't be told that it's all going to die. And no. I won't work. I, I, I believe that's not true anymore either. I, I have to believe that. Yeah. You're, the character, Miss Patmore, was she was under a lot of pressure down there in that kitchen, wasn't she? She, was, she had a lot of uh, responsibility. You know what was really helpful? Really helpful at the very beginning. We had a historical advisor on set oh. who is the real deal. He's kind of... He's, he's from the military, I suppose, but he also has close connections with the royal family. He's proper, you know, he, his, some old way, way back relative was, what's it, the Bruce? What's he called? Oh, is that awful? I should know this. Dobbs, who's it? Something the Bruce, the famous historical character. 
Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce. Yeah. Robert the Bruce, who's a kind of old famous Scottish dude, is his grandfather or something. So he's very well connected and he understands the history very well uh, that we were covering. He, he knows about the detail of things and he, he taught us how to make it real. So he wouldn't have people bobbing and curtsying and all of that. Like he said, that's not how it worked. People were busy. They all had a job to do. Everybody got along and knew what to do. You didn't stand there, you know, doffing your your cap. You'd walk into a room. You'd put logs on the fire. You wouldn't ask permission. You'd go and do it, then you'd leave. So he taught us the workings of a house. And what he did with us on day one is he got the whole of the downstairs staff and he put them in order of importance. So Little Daisy was absolutely at the bottom. <laughs> number three, as it turned out, because the butler was number one, the housekeeper was number two, but I was number three, but head of the kitchen. And what he explained, and that's why it made sense why the woman was so fraught, was he said, the buck stops with you when it comes to food at Downton Abbey. So it made logical sense. You go, of course, the stakes are really high. She can't screw up. People can't go and go, the food was a bit, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got to do a great job. Because if she doesn't, she happens to have a kind um, employer, but if she didn't, she'd be out yeah and then what yeah he hasn't got plan b there's no welfare system you know in fact in terms what he did say was don't feel sorry for these people he just put it all in context mm -hmm. in their class they're working class people they've all got really good jobs because they've got a roof over their head they've got wages they've got the respect of their peers actually because otherwise you'd be working in a field or down a mine or a factory if you're lucky yeah so he, he made it, we, we begun to understand why the stakes were high, in my case, for instance. Yeah, that pressure was real. Mm -hmm. yeah. Either way, they never stopped eating. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, the relationship with you and Daisy was just, uh, that was just so precious. Well, that's because that comes from real, because yeah. I adore her, absolutely. Yeah. She calls me telly, mummy. <laughs> We just get on, and I, I respect her hugely. I think she's she's incapable of doing anything that isn't real. Yeah. Just terrific, and she's funny, and she was the best buddy to work with. And I think then that showed on the screen, and so he wrote that for us. Yeah. People ask me, gee, do you all, uh, do you all really like each other? Do you really, really like each other, and do you stay in touch and everything? And you did, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I wish I could have said some, you know, uh, horrible thing and some scandal, but unfortunately there wasn't any. But don't you think, Jeff, that one of the reasons that your show was such a huge hit was there was a chemistry on screen that was real. Yeah. That sometimes, I, I'm not being funny, but I think people sort of smell it. Yeah. They kind of sense there's something going on that's cohesive and magic and real and not full of torment. You know, you obviously didn't have people who were huge pains in the arse, and we didn't either. Yeah. We really didn't. So there's never a day when he went, oh, I can't be bothered to go to work today. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know, that can ruin anybody's job. It doesn't matter what job you do. Yes. And I think it was certainly your writer was incredible, and he was able to write human stories and human humans. Yeah. And I think that's what's so special about MASH, too. They, they wrote, Larry Gelbart wrote human. Humans. And your guy did that. I mean, he did that for 50 some odd episodes. And that touch it, we're all humans. And if somebody is good enough to do that, that touches you. You see a real human thing, an interaction. And then, then you realize why people get involved with it, why they get so attached. Yeah. Why they actually kind of do think you're, you're real. Yes. I mean, if you get asked all the time, are you a great cook? Yes. People did ask me that. Yes. Because did you look like you were a good cook? 
Well, uh, the difference between Miss Patmore and Igor was Igor was a schlub. He was not a good cook. <laughs> they wanted to kill him. But you both had to cook a lot of food for a lot of people, very important people who were over you. Yeah. And it was a very important role in camp yeah. or at Downton Abbey. That's right. We were we were nurturers in a, in a respect, you know. And also, the kitchen is a sort of heart of a lot of places, isn't it? It's the sort of hub of a, of a home. Yes. People gravitate to the kitchen. It's an it is an important, it's just, it can be the heartbeat of a house or, a, yes. I don't know, the sound of a house. It, it is, it's an important place. Yeah, it's a very important place. Like you said, they ate all the time and, you know, the military ate all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, because I can't cook, really, and because I've got no skill at all, and nor is the girl playing Daisy. I mean, we haven't. So we, we learned very, very quickly, don't do anything that'll catch you out. Don't do anything technical. And that includes rolling pastry even. Oh, Don't do it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, we, we kept to the minimum. And I realized quite quickly, if you work fast, that convinces people you know what you're doing. <laughs> I would only do what I've seen TV chefs do, which is they present things, they taste things, they garnish, and they shout at people. I think in Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> So I just face your whole really. And then people know what you're doing. It's a con, really. <laughs> so you patterned Miss Patmore after Gordon Ramsay. Can we, is that a scoop here? I did, I did in the end, yeah. All right. Because well. I figured that that's what convinced people that you knew what you were doing. And it seemed to be about speed and doing nothing that people could say, she can't look at that. <laughs> she hasn't got a clue. <laughs> That's funny. And also, I have to say, I'll tell you what, there, there used to be a thing when we rehearsed a scene, which we barely did, and we had no rehearsal at all. Really? Oh, hardly anything. There was no time. But what we would say is, as we all gathered with the director to have a very quick rehearsal, we'd say, what time is it? Because that would inform how fast we were working. I mean, it's logical, really. So if it's 10 to 1, then it's bonk. I mean, it's gone nuts because we've got 10 minutes to get the food upstairs. If it's half past nine at night, we might just have sat down to have a cup of tea. But, you know, it, it would inform how much pressure were you under. If it was 11 o'clock, there would be a full-on sort of mad energy in the place. But it was never slow in there. Never. Yeah, very interesting. You mentioned tea. Do me a favor. Explain tea to me. I <laughs> Well, let me tell you something. You guys here do not know how to make tea. Well, I, okay, then, because I, I, I tried. You know, I know it's a big, it's a staple. I mean, it's part of the DNA of the UK. I, but I've tried to drink it, and it's kind of, I would put the lemon in a little. I don't know. But am I doing it wrong? Yes, you're doing it wrong. Is that what it is? I'll tell you what, there's something very, very simple that you just can't get people to do here. And I'm talking about even in the fanciest hotels, they won't bloody do it. They won't boil the water. You have to boil the water, whether it's proper tea leaves or whether it's tea bags. This lukewarm thing does not make it right. It's oh. really important. And I've had so many conversations where you go, is there any chance I could possibly get either a kettle or some boiling water? The water is hot. No, no, I was hoping it would be like boiling. No, it's hot, hot water. You know, but can you possibly make it boiling? <laughs> Trust me, it makes the difference between nah, tea 
and tea how it's supposed to taste. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it again. But you, can you get good tea if you go out and buy the little tea bag, Lipton's tea or whatever the heck it is and try I mean, is that any good or you have to do the real thing and put it in I mean, there, are, there are all kinds of teas, some better than others. I wouldn't like to say anything against Lipton's, but I wouldn't stop there first. I would say <laughs> Twining's quite good. Um, but, you know, I'm not a tea aficionado. I'm not at all. Okay. Honestly, I have tea bags. I have Lady Grey because it's a kind of Earl Grey. Because I don't drink milk, it's kind of a nice tea and I, I sort of like it. But there are people, I mean, I know American. I do. American people here who know so much more about tea than I do and, and, and have the tea leaves and, and yeah. Deep and that's the other thing you should let it sit and you know steep they call it as it blossoms yeah i've seen those little uh, silver balls you put the tea leaves that's in the right, balls yeah, and, yeah. yeah. there's a whole big thing i'm not i'm not that mad about it but the bottom line is boil the water before oh, whatever you do that's yes. it okay I've got good luck with convincing anybody that that's necessary if they don't feel like going along with it. brian are you a, a water boiler did you are you a tea guy? I, I i occasionally will drink a, a cup of tea but i've been doing it completely wrong evidently <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing the tea bag thing, or are you going straight to the tea leaf thing? I, I do the tea bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the least amount of effort that I have to put forth into my tea game is uh, probably what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And are you going to be adding milk or cream to it, or are you going to be adding some sort of lemon thing? Maybe a little bit of lemon, maybe even some honey occasionally, but I, I've never done any cream or, or milk to it, no. Oh, milk. Yeah, we have milk. That's what we have. Just cream is what you put on your pudding. Okay. What you call cream? I'm not quite sure what cream is here. Uh, it's 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 from a cow, I think, or something, isn't it? <laughs> I don't I certainly remember. Hope so. I, I certainly <laughs> hope so. So does that cow? So I have a, a couple of things, and we won't keep you all night long, I promise. But I know that you're very involved in animal protection. Yeah. And I just kind of want to touch on it, if you don't mind, because I identify with it a lot. And I think we briefly talked the other day and I said, I love animals. I have a parrot that I've had for 20 some odd, 36 years, actually. Aww. And I have had wonderful dogs that I've adored from my heart and soul. I've owned horses and I've, you know, so I, I really identify with animals and I hate any cruelty at all. So I have trouble in terms of my diet because I do eat meat, but it's, it's a conflict and I work on that all the time. But I know you're very involved with some good organizations and good stuff. Well, that Downton Abbey completely got me into that. I, I was always an animal lover, but I didn't have any animals um, because I couldn't. It was too difficult. It was only in later life that I've been able to, since I married my dear husband, we've been able to have dogs, which has changed my life, actually. Yeah. I mean, they're so amazing, amazing to share your life with. But... It was because I suddenly got sort of a profile where people invite you to things and listen to what you say a bit that I got drawn into a couple of animal charities, one one in China. And the one in China is called Animals Asia. And they rescue moon bears from the bear bile industry, which is a whole issue, which is worth looking at, actually, because they're doing terrifically well. And they're about to get it stopped completely in Vietnam. After 20 years of campaigning, they're, they're going to stop this cruelty, which is fantastic. But the only reason I was of any use to them was because 160 million people in China were watching Downton Abbey. Mm. So in a way, I've been drawn into that world. And trust me, you get as much out of it as you are giving. There's no question. I mean, I've been to a sanctuary three or four times now and seen moon bears up close and see them being loved, loved and looked after by largely a Chinese staff. You know, people are all very happy to 
trash the Chinese and say they're, they're terrible with animals. Well, they're not all terrible with animals. Some of them are, but a huge amount of them are very loving and compassionate. Forgive me, a moon bear, is it? it's a certain... It's a, it's a brown Asiatic bear. And the reason they're called moon bears is only because they have a yellow crest on their chest. Oh, I see. And the, the whole deal with them is they have bile in their gallbladders. And the bile has been used for Chinese traditional Chinese medicine for various ailments. And it helps. But of course... The truth is you can make it out of herbs. So there's no reason at all to use any part of a bear. Mm. But what happened to me was that I got drawn into this charity thing. And then I was taken by the lady who runs this charity, Dr. Jill Robinson, who's a dear friend now. And she took me to a place outside of LA called the Farm Sanctuary. And she kind of made me believe I was just going to spend a day petting animals, which how lovely would that be? You'd like that. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> So I went there and I'm on the floor rubbing the belly. I've never been that close to a pig of this big, gorgeous girl called Sophie. <laughs> and I'm rubbing her belly and she's just heaven. And they start telling me what was going to happen to Sophie. Mm. Oh. Oh, God. And they start explaining that, you know, this free range business about chickens all having a jolly, happy life in the field. It's, it's not true. You have to look at the truth behind this. And um, I won't bore you with all of that. But the fact is, you have to look at what's really happening here. And I left that place and never ate meat again. And I'd been eating meat for 60 plus years. Wow. So I'm not going to be born again vegan all over you. I am not. But sometimes something happens in your life and you go, hang on, I'm going home to my two dogs. Why is Sophie any different? Right. And at the same time, there was a book on a bookstore that I kept going past every day. This all happened at the same time. And this book, the title was, Why Do We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows? And that lodged in my brain. And I thought... Do you know, that is a really interesting question. Yeah. And that just made it, I didn't want to be a vegan. I was like, oh, God, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I had to go and get cookery lessons because my husband isn't vegan. Yeah. So I was like, if I don't go and learn cooking, I'm going to be very hungry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's all because of Downton Abbey. And, you know, the long and the short of it is Downton Abbey had many impacts on my life. And that happens to be Wow. What a moment in time, huh? My goodness. And certainly the other things now you've done uh, Beecham House. Beecham House, a period drama I did set in India where I'm playing an upstairs lady. <laughs> you finally made it. <laughs> I made it and she's addicted to laudanum, which means she's a drug addict. Oh, really? Wow. So um, I think so that, that was kind of a common thing. It is a lot of people I think were addicted. Oh my God. They gave it to their babies. If their babies were crying, they'd give them laudanum. I mean, they would get addicted. Oh. I mean, it's shocking stuff. And it was cheaper than booze. Oh. So it was very, very popular and very dangerous. And so this seemingly very respectable, posh middle-class lady, she takes it for her nerves, I think. Mm -hmm. She's a bit, you know, hyper, a bit neurotic. And she takes it and then she can't stop. And then so she arrives in India to stay with her son who's there. And she's got a severe habit. Wow. Interesting. Well, PBS is where you'll find it. Did you, what was the difference between Downton Abbey and doing well, that? Was there I'll a... tell you, so much different, you can't believe. But unfortunately, because it was a period drama, they tried to sell it as Downton Goes to Delhi. And you go, oh, oh <laughs> Downton Goes to Delhi. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I begged them not to do this. Yeah. I begged not to because i said hey don't get comparisons to down to because it's nothing the same it is about a house with some servants but it's a different it's 1795 oh. in india so it's a different country it's a different time goodness gracious wow but it looks 
gorgeous. I have to tell you, they shot it so beautifully. The, the, the lady who made it is Corinda Chada, who's a very successful filmmaker. So it's very cinematic. Which brings me to a moment, and I don't know how much we want to talk about this, but it, it's something that you mentioned a while ago about you have a one-woman show. Oh, I think we do want to talk about it, Jeff. I think we do. We could <laughs> definitely talk about it. Yeah. I saw, I was lucky enough to see the uh, kind of a preview of it. It was Drop Dead Terrific. You were Drop Dead Terrific. And you did the kind of the book. And our lovely friend, uh, Mark Muller, who we adore and love, wrote all the music. And uh, it was just an absolute brilliant pairing of two talents that was as magical, I think, as any of the television shows that we're talking about today. There was magic to it. We were about to be going to, well, no, in fact, we, we should have started rehearsals already now in LA our British director was coming over and we were at the end of this month we were heading for Chicago to do a month's um tryout you know our first time of doing a full production of it we've done a lot of changes since you saw it Mark the brilliant Mark has written two more killer songs I mean they these are these are just not just ordinary songs are they they're Amazing. And he's made them sound like it's my voice somehow. I mean, he's just a genius. He is. And so obviously that has had to be pulled for now. Yeah. So we are definitely going to do it. There's no question. We will do it. But as we all know, we're not at the point now where people will feel comfortable sitting next to each other in close proximity in a theatre. But I'll tell you what, don't you think it's going to be fabulous when people do feel safe again? Because it's meant to be. It's called How the Hell Did I Get Here? And it is my story, but it is not meant to be exclusively about me. It's about everybody. Mm-hmm. And I know it happened to you, and it happened to other people who saw it in its early stages. People come up to me afterwards. They don't want to talk about me, thank the Lord. They want to talk about themselves mm-hmm. and say, oh, you know that thing you did? I did that. I did that worse. Whatever. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be a collective, shared experience, like a hug, really. Yeah. But it's meant something that rings bells in people's heads and that's what theatre does when it works best and I think when people have been deprived of it which they will have done for many many months I think it's got a fair chance of being a great old experience in the theatre and we will get it we'll have we'll make it happen I I certainly hope so because it audiences deserve to see it and they deserve to see you do it and to listen to Mark's music. And it's great. In fact, Ryan and I, Ryan is in Illinois and we talked about, Hey, gosh, you know, we're going to go because Sherry and I were going to come and <laughs> see it when you were in uh, the idea of doing it in, in Chicago, I think. Yes. And, uh, unfortunately. But hey, like you said, it will happen. It has to happen. And, and the, the thing about it is, it hasn't got a sell-by date, this show. Mm, right. As long as Mark and I can stay upright. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a chance of being able to do it really anywhere, actually. And that is the plan. I mean, it may be that we will preview it maybe in Dublin, because I will be living back there at that point. But we will definitely do it here in the States. Definitely, definitely. And I think Chicago still very much wants us to do it there. But, you know, the West Coast, we want to do it everywhere. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think eventually, you know, this is going to be a while before they straighten out this problem uh, that's happening with the pandemic. Uh, So going into a theater is going to be, you know, a little while. But like you say, it will happen. Through all these years, all these thousands of years, people have been telling stories in various forms and theatre's been what it is in various forms. It won't die. It won't die. No. Somehow or other, this will come back and, it, and it'll be all the more precious because, you know, when it's good, it can make people feel so great. 
that's the magic of it. And that's what you want to do. And you were so wonderful and brave to talk about the things that you talk about and to make yourself vulnerable to those audiences to say, this is me. And this is kind of what I went through. And this is kind of what happened. And here I am. As you say, it's a universal feeling. That's why it's so magical because you were able to transmit that to us and we could identify with it. I think it's only an extension. I said this to Mark the other day. I said, you know, I've just realized this show is only an extension of what we do in life Mm -hmm. when we're together. You know, if we were around a table sharing an evening, it's only an extension of that. Yep. If you are somebody who is open, which I suppose I am. So I'm very happy, you know, I'm not going to bore the pants of people with, you know, the miserable bits, but I am going to share what's happened because we we say a thing at the end. We say, we're all on the same road. We just have different bumps. (laughs) And honestly, I think that's the message of the show is whatever you think other people are having a great time, none of us get a free ride. We all have to deal with stuff. We all do. And in a way, we, you know, at least we can hold each other up and support each other and go, it's okay. It's what we do. It's called life. And that's what we're dealing with. And certainly when, uh, when this gets up and running, which it will, we're going to publicize the heck out of it on MASH Matters. We're going to talk about it constantly and urge everybody to go see it because yes. they need to go see it. Leslie, you, you've been very generous with your time and thank you so much for talking to us today. If you don't mind, I happen to share a home with one of Downton Abbey's biggest fans. <laughs> And I think that she would probably leave me if I didn't allow her to slip in here and say hello and ask you a quick question. (laughs) I've been lurking the whole time. Hi, Miss Nickel. (laughs) Leslie, and you know what? I saw that name and I thought, so who didn't show up? (laughs) (laughs) I've been here the whole time. I'm just kind of dorking out because I'm a huge Downton Abbey fan and so hello, good to meet you. Hello. You, you've never seen MASH, have you, Julie? Uh, you ever watched them? No, probably not. I don't, what? No. <laughs> I love any kind of like period British show I'm watching called The Midwife, yes. Victoria. You have to watch Beecham House, darling. Okay, yeah. Masterpiece Theatre. Yes, any any big PBS show like that I love. And I'm a high school English teacher, so I always try to find a way to like reference it. Yeah. <laughs> It's an interesting period of history. Yeah. Poor old India was being banjacked by the blooming French, the English. They were all trying to get a piece of it. Mm-hmm. And it's not a period that people know, unless they're historians, they don't know much about right. it. So it's probably of value to your kids, actually. So I just wanted to pop in and say hi oh, and nice how much I love Mrs. Patmore and Daisy. <laughs> that relationship. I'm glad you guys talked about that because that's a pretty cool, like motherly relationship that grows over time. Yeah, she actually messaged me this morning mm-hmm. because I'm going back to England. Yeah, it's a neat relationship. I'm glad it wasn't always just bossiness. It's like I know. neat to see I know. the growth there. You know, one of the easiest scenes, Julie, if you remember, there was a scene in the London kitchen, if you know it well, where she was threatening to leave. And Mrs. Patmore starts crying. Yeah. And Daisy says, what's the matter? I don't understand. And she says, I don't want you to leave. And that was the <laughs> easiest crying scene I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. Because I just thought about what would I feel like if I lost her? Oh. <laughs> it's easy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But luckily, I'm not going to lose her. So it's fun. That's so cool. Ryan, it's funny how many times the word Sophie has come up in this conversation today. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Sophie was the name of Colonel Potter's horse on MASH also. Well, 
<laughs> and we used to have a dog named Sophie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of fond of that name. So you have seen MASH occasionally, Julie. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to be named Sophie as well. I don't know if anybody knew that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Sophie Maxwell. Yeah, that was my middle name. I... If I could ask you one question, could I ask you what like one of your favorite Miss Patmore lines was? Well, I quite liked, um, I said you could go for a drink of water, not a trip down the Nile. <laughs> My favorite of hers is, oh, get off with you, you cheeky devil. <laughs> well, there's one, I have to be honest, I've got a mug with it written on, and it says, sympathy butters no parsnips. <laughs> now, I have to be absolutely honest, I can't remember saying it, but I know I did. And I also know that I don't know what I was saying when I said it. <laughs> it comes off so trippingly, though. <laughs> I think I worked it out once, but I've forgotten. I've no idea. But yeah, no, he wrote some great upstairs Maggie Smith lines. Mm -hmm. And I got the downstairs version if I was lucky. So, I mean. Yeah, a lot of them went to Maggie Smith, but every now and then the downstairs people got one yeah, too, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, Leslie, I, you've been delightful here. Thank you for spending time with us. And uh, I think that people who watch MASH and love it for the same reasons that everybody loves Downton Abbey are going to uh, identify with our conversation here. And that's why I, I was very excited to have you part of this. There's no difference, really. And you were a part of something so iconic. And it was wonderful. I think that's why people are going to have fun. Certainly listening to you, they're going to be thrilled. So we appreciate it. And we love you and thank you. And can't wait to see you in person. I know. Exactly. And stay safe. That's really all it's about, isn't it? Put masks on. Yep. I'll let you do a secret. I put a bit of makeup on. Don't know why, because it, it's audio, but I did. And it's all over my mask. I've had to wash my mask. <laughs> you, just, you just have to do your eyes. That's all you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Have a good rest of the day. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. All right. Our sincere thanks to Leslie Nickel for joining us here on MASH Matters. What a delightful lady she is. Indeed. Wasn't that fun? Yeah. That was real. We should do a lot more international people. We'll bring on people from all over the world, maybe like Minnesota or something. You know? <laughs> it's crazy. It adds a little class to our podcast. It does, yeah. A little polish. A little polish, yes. Well, I, I won't stop this again. Well, I might. I might not be able to stop for the next 24 hours. If you have an English accent lasting more than 24 <laughs> hours, please consult a physician. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd said that. That was good. I like that one. Thank you. That was very good. I'm here all week, folks. Ab the veal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks to you, too, for listening to this episode. If this is your first time listening to Mash matters we have a lot of other episodes you might enjoy you can find them on your favorite podcast player or at mashmatterspodcast.com if you know somebody who loves mash please tell them about this podcast yeah and we have some cool things coming up here jeff on mash matters we are going to be doing a season five celebration very very soon so you can start getting us your favorite season five episodes tell us what your favorite season five episode is and why it's your favorite and we will be celebrating those coming up in the hopefully not too distant future. I'm getting my uh, celebrating pants on already. It's going to be great. And also, I really do want to give a big thanks out to uh, Mrs. Patrick, who did a wonderful job on MASH Matters today. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you, Mrs. Patrick. Don't give her a big head. 
she's going to expect to come on every week now. <laughs> and it's just not in the budget, honey. It's just uh, not in the budget. I keep telling well, you. Well, if she wants to do that, that's going to be her problem. She's going to have to take a significant pay cut if she wants to appear on future episodes. Yes, indeed. You can find Mash Matters at our website, mashmatterspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, subscribe, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And thank you, Leslie Nickel, for a delightful interview. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Hugs, 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 hugs. Until next time, here's looking up your old address. <laughs> <laughs>